and welcome to another episode of the My Possible Self podcast. Quick recap for our friends listening outside of the app. My Possible Self is the mental health app designed with you in mind. Our clinically certified content in partnership with the Priory Healthcare has been proven to reduce anxiety, stress and low mood. From movement videos to grounding practices, mindful exercises and a mood tracker, we have a wealth of tools and techniques that you can use at your leisure and it's all still free to download and dive into. Just type My Possible Self in your app's search engine and you will see a smiley blue face appear. I'm Gabby and in today's episode we are looking at an area that doesn't get enough attention or conversation space and that is perinatal mental health. Perinatal mental health problems occur during pregnancy and the very early stages of a child's life. If left untreated, mental health issues can have significant and long-lasting effects on the mother, the child and even the wider family. And unfortunately, sometimes a mother can feel too embarrassed or ashamed to admit they are struggling. Today's guest, Carmine Pariente, is a professor of biological psychiatry at King's College London and a consultant perinatal psychiatrist at the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. He's also a writer and editor for Inspire the Mind, an incredible online platform that has a world of blogs covering all things mental health. And to zoom in a bit further, Carmine is a medical researcher and clinician who specialises in the biological communication between the body and the brain, with a strong focus being in the areas of depression and fatigue, particularly in relation to the perinatal period and those suffering from mental disorders. Now let's proceed with today's episode. My overarching interest has always been uh, trying to understand why stress makes people ill. So what happened in the body and in the brain uh, when something bad happened to us and, and we develop you know, mental disorders or mental distress and, and hopefully we also develop somatic symptoms, so symptoms that we perceive in our body. And I've done mostly around the area of depression and major depression, uh, but I'm also interested in fatigue and in, in people who have comorbidity, so we've got have both mental and physical disorders, and, and kind of really looking at how the body change in situational stress and whether these changes in the body are relevant to mental health. Because I think, you know, we've always been struggling with this big dichotomy between the brain and the body. And so I'm always trying to put it together and basically demonstrate that, you know, mental health is basically the health of the whole person is not just in the brain and, and there are things that change in, in the body that affect your brain and your mental health. And, and so that we really should look at you know holistically rather than separate the body into compartments. When you mention looking at depression and fatigue, I'd imagine those two go hand in hand. They do. Um, you know, a lot of people with depression will experience fatigue and a lot of people with fatigue who have a primary fatigue problem will react with anxiety and depression just because of course it's the, the, the feeling fatigued uh, is very distressing and impairing and so for this reason these two conditions are often seen together 
also I'm particularly interested in depression and fatigue because I'm interested in how the immune system which as you know is the kind of you know the, the systems in the body that protect us from infections and and gets activated during you know uh, when you when you have a flu or you mm. get wounded or you have you know covid mm. and how the immune systems regulate the the brain and can induce some of the uh, can induce some symptoms and both depression and fatigue are typical symptoms that get uh, triggered by activation of the immune system so it's a really nice way of of um, understanding how the body respond to events that are external and how um, we respond to that also by experiencing mental symptoms. I want to know how you got interested in the perinatal period. So I suppose from from the get-go we should explain the perinatal period, what that is. It's from pretty much conception of a, of a child until, is it the first year after the child's been born? So the perinatal period includes pregnancy and usually the first or maximum the second year of postnatal life. So it's really the early childhood um, and the early years of development of the baby. So when we're talking about perinatal mental health, what we're looking at hopefully very sensitively today, perinatal mental health, it's a very vulnerable time in a, in a mother's life. And what's fascinating and also potentially quite sad is that how that goes on to affect the child's mental health absolutely so we have really two dimensions if you like um to perinatal mental health one is the fact that it's profoundly distressing of course for the mothers much more than we think because we tend to imagine the prenatal period always as a as a time of happiness uh, pregnancy in particular, we're more aware of postnatal depression and the fact that this is a challenging time. What we are less aware of is depression and mental health problems in general in pregnancy. Mm. And it is an area that is still quite, you know, stigmatized and difficult to talk about it. And women certainly don't feel comfortable to express their distress or, or even even more so you know the kind of mental health problems during pregnancy because there's this kind of societal expectation that's the perfect time of happiness for all women mm. and so there's definitely i'm really glad that this podcast allowed me to talk about this because there's a need for informing the public and and also kind of normalizing mental health problems in pregnancy as something that many women experience there's one dimension of how frequent and distressing this is Plus, there's also the fact that obviously mental health problems during the perinatal period, because they interfere with so much of the, the pregnancy, the, the normal development of the child. And then when the child is born, you know, with the mother, with the interaction between the mother and the child, it also it creates a vulnerability for the child himself or herself to then go on to develop difficulties. Um, in childhood or in adolescence. This is very common and possibly even more common than postnatal depression, although it doesn't get talked about enough or there's not maybe enough help out there. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. So statistics show that, you know, perhaps one in 10 women, possibly even one in eight, women who are depressed have some at least some symptoms of depression during pregnancy. The numbers are similar, but slightly lower for postnatally, where it's more 
one in 10, one in 12. So, you know, it's, it actually is more frequent in pregnancy than postnatally. And the other things to consider is that often what we consider, what we call postnatal depression actually is a depression in pregnancy that has gone unrecognized because the woman has been able to more or less cope with her distress. And then once the baby comes, and of course, then everything becomes even more, more overwhelming than the woman decides to seek help. And we, we call it postnatal depression because the woman seeks help in the postnatal period, but actually possibly up to 50% of all cases of postnatal depression are really depression in pregnancy that just been, um, you know, the women came to ask help later. I noted this from a blog post on Inspire the Mind. An untreated episode of depression during pregnancy can be associated with negative long-term effects on the offspring's development, not, not only in infancy, but also through adolescence and young adulthood, even when taking the mother's mental health outside of this period into account. I guess I'm fascinated with how this little being that's so tiny can absorb so much in quite a short space of time when they can't even, you know, touch their nose or say hello. Well, first of all, there is the effect of depression during pregnancy, which are really partly driven by the biological communication between the mother and the baby. So, you know, it's, a, it's the time where the babies develop, the baby's brains develop, the baby's stress response develop. And so being embedded, if you like, or being exposed to a woman, to a mother who is distressed and is with all the biological signature of distress, for example, uh, uh, elevated levels of stress hormones like cortisol, elevated level of inflammation. All of this kind of predispose or create a trajectory for the development of the brain and the developing of the stress sensitivity of the baby toward a hyperactive or hyper-responsive biology. So during pregnancy is the development is creating a biological signature. And then of course, as soon as the baby is, is born, well, we know that the baby from day one is really reactive to interacting with the mother and with, of course, with other adults in the environment, but the mothers in particular. So everything that uh, interferes with what would be, uh, you know, the optimal communication of the mother and the baby. So the ability, for example, to understand each other through eye contact to for the mother to fully understand the needs of the baby and respond emotionally to the need of the baby. Everything that therefore, you know, if a mother is unable to do that completely or is partially disturbed in the, in the, in the, in the relationship with the baby because it is distracted, because it is distressed, because it's overwhelmed, then of course that also increases the vulnerability. So it's a combination of biological effect during pregnancy and kind of psychological effect that, that, that develops natally. Goodness. So how early on in pregnancy can this like maternal depression materialize? Do you know yet? We don't know if there is a vulnerable window that is the most vulnerable one, basically. Um, we did some studies in women that were depressed during the second trimester. And, and we found that at least in terms of early signature of stress in the baby, the baby was... Um, more reactive to stress. So we had a group of women that were depressed in pregnancy during the second trimesters. 
they had activation of the stress response. So they had increased cortisol level, for example, and increased markers of inflammation. And then we followed up the babies and, and the, the babies were characterized by, by two things. First of all, as early as uh, the first few days of, of, of life, uh, the babies tend to be more what we consider um, difficult to soothe and particularly activated and, and particularly responsive to the environment, but also um, difficult to come down. And, and so that's as early as day, you know, day four, day five of life. Wow. And then 12 months later, when we examined their stress response to the um, injection to the vaccination injection basically as you know they, they had the regular vaccination 12 months we found that babies born from this mother who were depressed tend to have higher cortisol response to stress so they responded more to the simple stress of vaccination uh, of the injection obviously of the vaccination and obviously we you know we don't know what is happening to these children once they become 10 or 12 or 18 but as an early indication it shows that at least they are kind of predisposed to hyperreact to stress. I just actually think that we should probably mention right now in case we've got any pregnant ladies listening that might be struggling. We're not here to to shame or to blame. We don't want you to freak out. You're hopefully going to feel some comfort and, and maybe get some sort of advice out of this as we keep going. If I can add to that, Gabby, so there's two important points to, to make to kind of exactly to confirm what you said first of all that although we are talking we're using a language that almost imply kind of one-to-one causality now we are saying depressed women have children that have increased vulnerability everything is, is is expressed really as a relative risk so it's not that every mother who is depressed in pregnancy will have a child who will be depressed or anxious in adolescence in fact yeah probably only a minority of mothers who were depressed in pregnancy will have a child that will have problems. However, even if it's a small number, it's still more than mothers that were not depressed. So it's an increased risk, but it's not by any way deterministic. Right. So don't freak out. (laughs) Don't don't freak out. Yeah. And the other important point, I'm talking about clinically significant depression. So I'm talking about women who, you know, should already be under the care of GP or perinatal mental health services, or you know, they should be seeking help. And if they're not seeking help, they should be, you know, now if they're listening to us. So, women that the depression is so strong that it's currently impairing their, you know, their everyday function. They may be crying every day. They may be unable to go working, for example. They may not be able to focus at all on the kind of developing babies. And, and so, you know, this is not the effect of everyday normal kind of worrying. About you know, about being pregnant, for example, mm-hmm, we're mm-hmm. really talking about kind of clinical depression. And, and again, I think if anything, this should be um, a reason for women to seek help. Mm. Well, I'm going to piggyback off that. Um, and I think, again, it was something on the Inspire the Mind website that I, I noted. The perinatal period represents a unique window of opportunity for intervention, as most women will have contact with health professionals, and they are usually highly motivated to engage in order to promote their own as well as their infant's well-being. So there are people around, should you feel like you're struggling, is, is the takeaway there. Um, but then 
something that I did want to ask you your opinion on is in that case why in the UK and this is again this is something I quoted from something you'd written actually perinatal mental health problems cost society 8.1 billion a year or £10,000 for every single birth in the country so that is a staggering amount of money. So this costing evaluation was done a few years ago and in fact um although we don't have updated kind of information, it has um, prompted uh, an investment in mental health services for the perinatal period. So the UK government actually responded proactively to, specifically to this report actually was one of the piece of evidence that was brought to their attention. And so wow. there are now more perinatal mental health services that there were, you know, 10 years ago. Well, that's still, great. <laughs> you know, it is definitely, it's definitely good. You know, that was before the COVID pandemic and all the additional strain that that has put on, on all the mental health system in general and, you know, youth mental health and, and also perinatal mental health. Uh, you know, they all kind of suffered during the COVID period, but at least up to the point, the government had tried to invest more. Um, it'd be interesting to see whether, you know, the situation is, is will change in, in a few, in few years because of that. What kind of services are available then? So, I mean, basically the idea is that perinatal mental health is quite a specialist area that, you know, you want to have a psychiatrist and psychologist and other mental health professionals that have special training or special interest in this area because there, you know, there are decisions that needs to be taken. For example, on what are the needs of the woman in terms of medication? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the specific needs in terms of psychotherapy? Especially considering the short window that you may have available in terms of trying to intervene as quickly as possible. Uh, or the other special forms of psychological intervention that are dedicated to mothers and babies. So we, we can intervene after the baby is born to promote uh, kind of a, a more uh, intimate relationship or more intimate interaction between the mother and the baby if, again, it's disrupted because of a mental health problem. So the very specific set of skills across all um, disciplines, if you like, within the mental health, from the medications and kind of medical management all the way down to psychological um, and psychosocial support. And so what the what the government has tried to do more is invest in specifically these teams. So teams within the works across mental health trusts and hospital trusts. So they work very closely with, of course, the uh, midwifery services, the um, obstetrics uh, services, so that the women are supported by both services, basically, at the same time, and receive the special support that they need. And so that's, you know, that's literally putting people with expertise, more people with expertise available to women. Hannah Wilkinson, who's one of the directors of My Possible Self, she won't mind me saying that she really struggled when she had her daughter. It was a first child. And she felt very unsupported. This was actually, must have been a few years ago, so this was perhaps before this government increase in support had been rolled out, I suspect. Um, But her experience was... Once you have had the baby, there's usual minimal support postnatally. You're given so much support before and during labour. And then afterwards, you're just left alone. And that really is the most important part. She said, I remember when she had her daughter and had loads of support. And then once she 
got off the labour ward and she was left on her own with a newborn baby, baby in the hospital all night. So she was struggling from then and uh, she went to the doctors because she was basically, yeah, I will use the word struggling. They tried to put her on anti-anxiety medication, which she says wasn't what she needed. She was just unaware of what motherhood was about. And she said there's a lot of stigma about having to enjoy it. But nobody said it's it's normal if you aren't enjoying it. And she said anti-anxiety medication from for a mother of an 11-week-old baby is definitely not the answer in my opinion. She shared her story with me today, so I just I, I wanted to share it with you and, and see what you thought about all of that. I mean, look, obviously, it's difficult for me to comment on, the, on an individual story, but I'm a psychiatrist, and although I, I have a, a high threshold to prescribe medication, I think when they're needed, they're needed. Again, I don't know whether she needed at that time, mm-hmm. but it's not that medication are not indicated just because a woman is pregnant or a woman is a postpartum period, if the, the severity of the situation requires it. And so it is really important that we, that we put that across. Every choice about the medication is always a kind of a choice between risk and benefit. You know, women who are pregnant or breastfeeding take all sorts of medication for pain, for other medical disorders they cannot stop, uh, you know, antibiotics if you get infections, all of this uh, medication that have some side effect, both for the mothers and for the baby, but they also have some beneficial effect. And psychotropic medication like antidepressants in particular, you know, the medication that, you know, will carry some risk as all medication, but they also carry benefit because we know that if a mother is struggling with depression, if a mother is struggling with a clinically significant depression during pregnancy, that will affect you know, her biology and will just basically allow the kind of biological signal of stress to go through the baby. And then after the baby is born, you know, it will affect the way the mother can look after the baby and can communicate with the baby. Or, and, and even if the mothers manage to maintain a you know, a normal function, it comes to a personal cost that is not sustainable. So by all means, I'm not one of those people that advocate medication to everybody. And as I've said, in the, in the context, in general, I have a very high threshold to prescribe medication. In the perinatal period, I have an even higher threshold, but there are women that, there are many women that prescribe medication too, yeah. I think maybe as well, she was getting at the support of, and she's got a supportive family, but like the support of, partner family friends and and that led me to thinking about how yeah when when a new baby is brought into the world we're all celebrating the miracle of life and me thinking about my cousin who recently just had a baby and and you do focus on the child that you kind of forget that the mother's gone through this whole journey because it's this new little cute thing that's come into the world and is a new addition to the family or to the network of friends or or whatever and so do you, do you think there's more that perhaps fathers, family members can do to help a, a mother yeah. that's struggling? There's absolutely much more than we can all do to help mothers um, at a societal level, at a family level, and, and friends network level. We need to remember that this idea of of motherhood or raising a child as a 
you know, as an individual thing or even as a couple thing is very, very modern and only typical in the Western society. So it's, it's still, a, you know, it's a lifestyle for a very minority of, a small minority of people over the last 40 or 50 years, up to you know, 100 years ago. And today in many countries all over the world, children are raised by large families. They all live together or they live very close. Um, mothers take, take, you know, take turns or they are helped by sisters other women yeah. in the family other people in the village or in the city and and so you know i think there's a we, we need to go back to this idea of a child being the responsibility of you know a broader network of people i mean i'm not even start talking about of course fathers parents uh, <laughs> yeah. so you know grandparents you know they're also grandparents and grand or within the family but certainly the idea that this is a responsibility at societal level and i think what the society actually is doing is is going against this because of course you know mothers or fathers have to take a decision who's going to take time off work mm. um other people may not be able to, they may have to, may not have the time uh, to, to help, you know, someone who has just had the baby. Um, you know, social support for women who are pregnant or in the postnatal period, and even for, you know, for childcare is, is been shrinking over the years. Mm. And I think that's definitely something that, that this has been a major failure societal level, not recognizing that actually every baby is a society responsibility. Mm. So that's, if you like, the looking from, from the outside in to the life of a mother with a small child. But to a mother with a small child, I would also say that, you know, she could, she should be asking for help, friends, family, social networks, local communities. You know, we, we don't want to reinforce this idea that actually... Um, raising a child is something that uh, you know a successful woman can do on her own with no problem because mm. that's create really a false um a kind of a, a, a false narrative a false narrative yeah. exactly yeah. i was looking I create a false narrative then then it's some kind of self-perpetuating yeah and i think you know the idea that women actually they're not supposed to look after the child on their own they're supposed to share that that really overwhelming uh, role with lots of other people yeah and i feel like actually I should mention the the father role as well uh, and touch upon that just slightly. And again, I'm going to relate this back to, to my cousin who recently had his first son. And he said to me, and he's a, a police detective, he specialises in like car crashes and this is, is not easily frightened, should we say, or, or squeamish or anything like that. But he said to me, it really affected him when he because he was at the birth and he saw what his partner went through and the pain and it's kind of still sitting with him and he said in his opinion there isn't really enough of a discussion had about you know new dads or or young dads or um how that affects their mental health because i suppose traditionally they're maybe seen as supposed to be the rock and just being there to support the mum and the child but maybe they need some supporters too absolutely and there's there's more interest now in fathers mental health in the perinatal period um because fathers and mothers mental health tend to go actually quite a lot in parallel so if a mother is depressed the father tend to be depressed as well which is a double whammy to 
to the system because both members in the, in the couple are struggling. But, it, it, but we definitely know that these two things can go hand in hand. And one of the if you like negative aspects of perinatal mental health services is that they're only for the women. And of course, fathers have said, you know, they, they, they also suffer from mental health consequences around the time of, during the perinatal period, especially mm. if the mother is also affected. Struggling, yeah. I think some of it is cultural, is about, you know, let's have a conversation about father's mental health. Well, let's have a conversation about man's mental health. Mm. Even that is difficult to have. Mm. You know, allow men to own their own vulnerability and, and allow them to ask for help. Definitely. I do want to bring it back now to uh, a rather high profile lady that you've had the pleasure of meeting. I think you said twice, Her Royal Highness, uh, the Princess of Wales. Yes, I did meet her twice. I've heard in like through the grapevine that in person she's even more stunning and flawless. <laughs> Is that true? It is it's definitely yeah. true. It's definitely true. This is a subject matter that she's incredibly passionate about. Absolutely. So she is, is basically, is really her, um, the field that she's been uh, developing and, and supporting over the last few years, the, the, the idea of the early years of the child, pregnancy and the early years as the, as the time to create a trajectory of of resilience and of, of mental wellness that goes across to the next generation. Mm, and, and you you first met her when she was pregnant with her third child. Yes. And, and, I, and I read somewhere that it was delayed, the meeting was delayed because she was suffering from the severe morning sickness. Yes, she did. She did um, start talking uh, about how bad um, her nausea was early on in pregnancy and I think it was a constant throughout all the three pregnancies yes gosh that must have really taken its toll are there any sort of standout moments from your conversations with Kate in in regards to perinatal mental health that that you remember I was really struck by how prepared she was at the topic I mean to be first of all a lay person so someone who you know is not an expert in the field and, and also I'm sure looking after so many different kind of aspects and topics on which she needs to be proficient, uh, she would actually really, really prepared. And she asked all the right questions about the research that we were doing at King's, uh, the clinical services that we were offering, um, the work that was done at the Mother and Baby Unit at the Monday Hospital, which actually she went to visit of the same day after stopping at King's. Yeah, you were quite touched at how she managed to to speak to mothers um, and, and make it quite a, an intimate experience, even with a load of press and cameras. That, that was really an amazing moment. You know, it was kind of a f room full of people, including, you know, people with cameras, a couple of policemen, you know, nothing that would have helped creating a moment of intimacy. And yet everybody felt quiet and she was kind of sitting next to this woman and you know, it could have been just a wall around them. She was really, she, she really did it magically, yeah. Wow, it's really cool to hear that kind of story work. You know, you see lots of pictures of her and stuff, but just that she's, you know, she's genuine. That's the word I'll use. She's definitely genuine. And, you know, she was sitting on the floor. It, it was really, yeah, She, it was really a nice moment. Wow. In terms of sufferers of mental health problems are there some specific mental health illnesses that are, are more common than others in in women that will 
go on to suffer with their mental health in pregnancy? Well, both depression and anxiety are quite frequent. And, and again, I'm not talking about mild depression or mild anxiety, which of course they are very frequent and they are linked to perhaps the adjustment of, of the condition of being pregnant or the adjustment of the baby. But even if we're looking at clinically significant depression mm-hmm. and clinically significant level of anxiety, so levels for which you want to have a professional interventions, those, as I said, could be quite frequent with, you know, one in 10, sometimes one in eight, one in 12. So, you know, a, a, a quite a large amount. Um, one disorder which is luckily is not as frequent, but it's when it happens is really quite devastating for the mothers and for the whole family's postpartum psychosis, um, which is different, very different from postpartum depression and is, is a condition that is basically a severe mental illness that tends to occur in particularly women who have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, who sometimes unexpectedly, because they didn't know about it, they, they actually have a very high risk of having a relapse immediately after a baby is born. And sometimes, in fact, women don't know they have a bipolar disorder until they have a baby and they have their first episode of, of mania. And this is a condition where, you know, there's acute confusion. A woman really becomes unable to function. You know, she may be experiencing voices or uh, experiencing odd ideas. Um, and so not only medication are required, but, you know, sometimes um, admission to hospital is required. And when it's possible, the admission is with the baby so that as much as possible, the mother is kept in contact with the baby. So, you know, it's the, they're rare, but when it happens, it's quite devastating. And so, again, I'm, I'm using this podcast to make sure that, you know, there are women out there who, have, who know they have bipolar disorder and they're planning to have a child or they're pregnant at the moment, they should definitely seek help in advance and alert the doctors of their condition. And, and anybody who has the experience, so will have the experience to, to, to witness really sudden deterioration in mental health over a few days after a baby is born to be alerted that this could be a postpartum psychosis. And again, women should do immediately, women and the family should immediately be seeking help. And unfortunately, this can span over generations as well. It can sort of get passed on through the bloodline. Absolutely, because, you know, as, as bipolar disorders and all this kind of severe mental illness, there is a genetic component. Um, and so there have been narratives, books written by people that recognize how they had the episode of postpartum psychosis. They, they, they had it, their sister had it, their mother had it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I wonder, say the child grows up to be an adult and their mother had perinatal mental health problems if they grow up to have mental health problems would they be the same areas of concern that the mother experienced or could they be could they be different could they be like um i don't know if the mother suffered severe depression maybe they were had like an anxiety disorder yes there is a lot of fluidity, if you like, in how this yeah. vulnerability is transmitted from one generation to the next. And we know for, that a, a mother who is depressed in pregnancy, again, I'm talking about clinically significant depression, I'm, and I'm talking about increased risk. But in a way, this is not kind of deterministic happening mm-hmm. 100%, but increased risk. The, child, the children, especially when they become adolescents, can experience a whole range, they are higher risk of experiencing a whole range of 
mental health problems. It could be hyperactivity and, uh, um, and so kind of, you know, the, the attention deficit disorders. It could be depression, anxiety. So it could be in any sphere. Right. And then one more question on this. Um, and it, it was because I was sort of thinking the other day about our chat was coming up. And I wondered nature versus nurture, like if a child is adopted, and I don't know at all if there is any kind of uh, data on this, but if a mother has given a child up for adoption and she suffered perinatal mental health, and that child goes on to be adopted and has a, a fantastic childhood and a, a, a very loving family that desperately wanted the child, and it, the child is given all that love and support, I wonder would they go on to necessarily develop problems with their mental health? That's a really interesting question on which, unfortunately, we don't have the answer. Um, adoption studies are very, very difficult to do. Um, and, and of course, especially with kind of all this focus of, on, on privacy. I mean, they were conducted many, many years ago, mostly for, for example, to look at, as we were discussing before, genetic um, predisposition. So, for example, uh, children born from mother that had schizophrenia or psychosis, so kind of really severe mental illness. But the question specific about perinatal mental health has not been addressed using adoption studies. However, I want to go back to the idea that I was saying that what we are describing is always an increased risk. Mm. So, you know, you have two mothers equally depressed and you know 10 years later one of their children has ADHD or depression and the other one doesn't you know don't know why but obviously uh, this this kind of multiple coexistence of factors other adults in the family um you know protective factors perhaps the school was different the friendship was different the relatives were different um other things that happened in the context of the family were different so you know these are these are complex trajectory that can get that can be influenced at any time in both directions so that's why i think it's important that you know I, i keep kind of reiterating that this is not in any way a deterministic effect and then, you know, many children born from mothers who were severe, even severely depressed in pregnancy go on to be really healthy child. And anything that we can do at any stage to support the child will push them one step further into the direction of, of health, mm. of mental health, mm. which, again, that's why we as society should take more responsibility for doing this. I mean, you know, that we have conversation about stopping free meals at schools, uh, you know, mm-hmm. or withdrawing child support, or we as society could do to change the trajectory of, of wellness of a person. And for that person means also, you know, the, the generation after them. So that's where the society, again, as individual, as family, as friends, we should take responsibility of the people that are close to us. As a society, we should take responsibility of everybody else. Yeah, okay. I couldn't agree with you more. It's about supporting each other, you know, from, from the family, the friendship, the society, globally. I, I absolutely agree. And just to kind of wrap things up, I want to make sure people know about Inspire the Mind because, wow, that's a lot of content. About 200 pieces written by around 
uh, almost 100 different writers. Yeah, so if people want to go and check check this out, and they should, it's inspiredthemind.org. Inspiredthemind.org, absolutely. And they can, if people want to write for us, they can also pitch a story or oh, something that they want to Oh, you heard it here yeah. first. Thank you for, for sharing all your wealth of knowledge. And I feel like... You know, we've probably just scratched the surface of, of, of everything that you are looking at. Thank you, Gabby, for having me. Thanks again to Professor Carmine Pariente for a very informative chat on perinatal mental health and huge appreciation to you for listening to this very episode. To find and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, we are at My Possible Self. Until the next one, do take care. I've been Gabby. Bye for now.